welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. It's hard to believe that we are just days away from election day. <laughs> oh my gosh, we've been waiting and waiting. It feels like it's it's been years and uh, we're, we're here. So this is the pre-election or final uh, podcast before the election. And I'm thrilled to have a conversation with George Conway, who really needs no introduction. Um, George was gracious enough to come and have a chat with me and, and just talk a little bit and have a conversation. So stay tuned for my conversation with George Conway coming up in just a little bit. But first, I want to talk a little bit about my sponsor, On Duty USA. On Duty USA is a veteran-owned, veteran-farmed, and veteran-operated health and wellness company. So if you have trouble with anxiety, and I know a lot of people have during this crazy election cycle, if you have issues with insomnia, aches and pains, On Duty's Kentucky-grown products are all you need. On Duty offers a line of premium CBD products from traditional sublingual oils, gummy bears, beeswax, topicals, and much more. Be sure to shop and save 15% on your order when you visit ondutyusa.com and sign up for their monthly subscription at checkout. You can also subscribe to the On Duty Monthly Report, where they share the latest in veteran news and offer exclusive insider discounts. Now, as a special offer to my listeners, the Honestly Speaking listeners, On Duty is offering a one-time 20% off discount. Simply type Tara in the promo box at ondutyusa.com. That's Tara in the promo box of ondutyusa.com for a one-time 20% off discount. And as you've heard me say in the past, I am a user of their products. I use their drops and their um, their lotions for inflammation for my knee. My husband uses it for his back. And my mom uses their products for her dog, Samantha, who gets uh, seizures. CBD really, really helps Samantha. So it is a family affair. And um, I hope that you try them out and support a veteran-owned small business. Uh, I am definitely sold on, on the value of CBD. So I hope you try it. All right. So as I was saying, here we are. We're days away from this election. And, you know, I've said this many times. If you watch me on LPTV on our show, the Lincoln Project TV streaming show, The Breakdown, which I co-host with the Rick Wilson nightly at 9 p.m. Check us out if you haven't already. But I often talk about how I have agita. You know, I'm, I'm part Italian and there's a term for angst. And it's a it's an Italian slang term called agita. And even though the the fundamentals look really good for Joe Biden um, and even for Republicans to possibly lose the Senate, I, you know, you just never know. I so I am I'm confident but cautious. I think it would be the the best way to describe how I'm feeling about everything that's going on. Um, but I'll tell you what I am. I am incredibly encouraged by the amount of early voting. Holy shit. As of the time of this recording, we're looking at over 80 million people cast their ballots early. That's phenomenal. Unbelievable. And, you know, one of the complaints that I've had over the years is that the American people are really complacent and they take for granted the right to vote and the fact that we have free and fair elections in this country. Not enough people participate. You know, you compare us to some other Western style democracies and, you know, our voter participation rate, it should be 90 percent. 
You know, we live in the greatest country in the world and we have a representative government. So we get the government that we deserve depending on the level of participation. So to see this happen now, it just tells me that the American people have had it. They are fed up with Donald Trump and the chaos. And it is really just, I think, I hear anecdotally all the time how many people were not involved, not engaged before the era of Trump and how this has really just shaken them and just woken them up to realize that, holy shit, I need to do something to be involved. I I, I don't want to see my government and um, our elected officials behave the way people have during this era of Trump. So that's a good thing. And um, George Conway in our conversation he uh, he brings up how in, in in well in conversations I can't remember if he did in this one or not but he has in the past talked about how one way that Trump has actually united us is in in you know he's divided us in a lot of ways but he's also united us in our fight for common decency our fight for the democracy and there's a lot of strange bedfellows all in this together to try to oust him and take down Trumpism so there's that. And um, my husband and I went to vote early uh, about a week ago, and it was we stood online for an hour and a half. It was a Friday afternoon. And in the state of Virginia, where we live now, early voting started September 18th. We were one of the earliest states to start this in-person early voting. And the fact that we still had to stand online a month later for an hour and a half just tells you the level of enthusiasm. People are not playing around. Um, it was fun. I mean, I've never stood online for an hour and a half to vote before. That's small potatoes compared to some other states, right? I'm not I'm not really complaining about that. But it was just a fascinating exercise and to watch it all unfold. Uh, um, if you follow me on Instagram, you saw that I posted the whole experience on my Instagram stories and that I posted it on my um, Instagram account. So it's there permanently. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out on, on Instagram at the Tower Set Mayor. And the funny thing is that my husband, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, he's my husband's the best, but so he doesn't like to stand online for anything. And I get it. Who does? But when we saw how long this line was, he was like, oh, my God. And we heard people saying, yeah, it's about an hour and a half. So he was not happy until he remembered that he had his fold up giant's chair in the trunk of his car because he had just gotten the oil change in his car and he was sitting outside the dealership. But the thing is, he only had one chair. So we had to switch off back and forth. And I was hoping that people didn't think that my husband wasn't being a gentleman when he was sitting in the chair and I was standing. It was okay. I didn't mind standing, you know, I didn't mind walking around and stuff like that, but it was kind of funny. And then I felt bad because there was a lady standing behind us on the line and um, she had a cane. Now she was probably in her, mm, I don't know, maybe mid fifties or so. And um, she was also yapping on her cell phone, which was annoying, but whatever. But, you know, I felt bad because I was like, maybe we should share our chair with her. But, you know, in the era of COVID, uh, we were kind of like, uh. so I felt really bad because my inclination was to like let her sit in our chair. But, you know, you just can't be too cautious now, you know, with the COVID. And 
we had our masks on, even though we were outside, but we're still standing on a line. And there were these idiot, these Trump people out there, you know, I'm sorry, but if you're still arguing over mask wearing, I don't freaking want to hear from you. I just don't. You are not a credible person. And they had the tent set up. They had a Trump tent. They had a Biden tent and um, they weren't harassing people, but there was a couple of just loud, obnoxious Trump supporters and one in particular who I actually had words with. Um, and uh, I was like, listen here, buddy, you, you don't even really want to go there. You don't want this fire. Okay. You just don't. <laughs> so keep it moving. And I don't think he realized that my husband was with me. And when he stood up, he kind of, uh, scurried away at that point. Um, but it, you know, other than that, it was great. We had a good time. Uh, we were chatting with some people around us. I had my Lincoln project hat on and that attracted some attention from people who are fans of what we're doing at the Lincoln project, which was pretty cool. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I have to say that this has been an unbelievable experience. Uh, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to have the opportunity to be part of the Lincoln project movement and to see the uh, incredible amount of support that we have gotten. Um, So many people reach out to me on social media to thank us for giving them hope and keeping them sane throughout this whole thing. And um, we've really motivated a lot of people to get involved too, which is really what it's about for me. So I'm so thrilled. And for those who are wondering if the Lincoln Project will continue after the election, the answer is absolutely. Um, It does not end on November 3rd or 4th. It does not end. Even if Joe Biden wins, there are still plenty of collaborators out there of Trumpism that need to be taken down also. And we consider ourselves to be a pro-democracy movement. So there's still lots to be done. So yes, Lincoln Project will still exist. We will still be around. And uh, Lincoln Project TV will continue. So if you haven't checked out our show, The Breakdown, uh, like I said, it comes on at nine o'clock in the evenings. And um, you can watch it on live stream on Facebook, on YouTube, or on Twitter. So I'm excited about the possibilities of of this. And I'm, you know, I've always been a solution oriented person. So doing things that have impact matter to me. It really does. So the Lincoln Project team is, um, you know, we're, we're certainly having an impact on this election. And that just, it's historic what's happening. And to be a part of it is really humbling and pretty cool. So there's that. Uh, when I cast my ballot, you know, talking about it being uh, like emotional and I've never, I've never actually teared up from casting a ballot before, before this election. And that's what happened. Um, I've never voted for a Democrat for president before my entire adult life and career in politics has been about getting Republicans elected until Trump. And no, I don't agree. I'm not a Democrat, folks. I know my Democratic friends are like, yes, come on over. And I'll never be a Democrat. I'm sorry. I disagree with some of the fundamental policy positions and approaches to things. But where we do agree on democratic norms and institutions and I and basic decency, and there are there's a lot more uh, common ground where we can work on solutions to to problems. Um, but it's, uh, cause I'm a conservative first, you know, the Democrat Republican thing, that's just the political mechanism by which you express your political power. But I, you know, I come from a conservative viewpoint, um, and not Trumpism. Okay. It's a, that's a whole different discussion. And I think after the election, I will, um, talk a little bit more about that 
kind of the ideology part of these things because the fight has really been the priority, right? Just the fight to get this guy out of here and exposing the corruption and the oversight and um, holding people accountable. But that day when I cast that, that, that ballot, I never thought I, I, when I, when I, you know, slid it in the little machine thing and I heard it go, you know, that it was accepted. I, I welled up. Like I, I actually like it. I got this feeling in the pit of my stomach and, and I, and I just, um, you know, I got tears in my eyes because I just felt the gravity of the moment at the time. And I don't know how many other people felt that, you know, when I posted the video, when I came out of the, when I came out of the voting booth and I posted the video about what just happened, the reaction was, um, extraordinary. I didn't expect it to go viral the way it did. Uh, it was like one and a half million impressions on on Twitter, and um, the the feedback I got from so many people thanking me for doing the right thing. And it, I mean, I don't know why they were thanking me because, or why it was even a surprise. I've been very vocal. It shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone that I was not going to vote for Donald Trump. I've been very vocal about my support for Joe Biden. But I did hear from some other people who said that my testimonial was emotional for them, which was was fascinating. It was just fascinating. So this has just been an emotional roller coaster for lots of folks. I think people recognize the gravity of the moment that we're in. And um, I really felt like I was casting a ballot for the future of our country, for the future of our constitutional republic and literally for our, our lives. And um, I guess that's why. So I hope that there are millions of others who joined me in early voting. If you are listening and you have not voted yet, please get your ass to the polls, Have a make a plan, bring some water and a snack. If it's going to be, you're going to be online for a while, bring a chair with you, do whatever you have to do. As my mom said that she would crawl over broken glass to get to the polls to vote Donald Trump out of office. And I feel like she's not alone. So yay, democracy, let's do this and uh, hope for, hope and pray for a, a result next week that is um, Joe Biden as a winner. Now, let me talk about that too. So I know a lot of folks have trepidation over the election, over what's going to happen on election day. What do we do if we don't have a result? Listen, do not freak out, okay? This is going to be a different type of election night. Um, I mean, if, if Joe Biden is winning by a landslide, that would be great. For example, if he wins Florida, we'll know the results pretty early from Florida because they began counting their votes. So unlike Pennsylvania, who can't open their mail-in ballots, their absentee ballots until election day to start counting them, same thing with Michigan, Florida, they count them as they get them. So we'll have a result at a timely hour with Florida, unless it's incredibly close again, which we're hoping it's not. If that's the case, if Joe Biden wins Florida, it's pretty much going to be a landslide victory for him. I'm telling you this right now. But if 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 Biden doesn't win Florida, that doesn't mean that he's not going to win the whole thing. He can still win a considerable amount of electoral votes, put him over 270 without Florida. He looks very, very well positioned in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Um, yes, things are tightening a little bit, but I'm telling you, I just don't see what changes this momentum 
away from from Biden. He's winning a, a larger than the margin of victory. Polling has gotten much better since 2016. So I feel pretty good about it. Now, this idea that there's some shy, quiet um, contingent of 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 Trump voters out there that are going to emerge on Election Day and overtake this thing. I just don't see that. I just don't see it. Uh, you know, one of the hallmarks of being a Trump supporter for these people is how loud and proud they are about it. So I just don't see a large number of people still being quiet and going to cast their ballot for Trump. Maybe anything's possible. Nate Silver over at 538 gives Biden an 80 plus percent chance of winning. Let's hope he's right. You know, anything can happen. But with COVID raging and how irresponsible they have been with this. And just Trump's final argument, his closing argument has been nutso. Barnstorming the country with these COVID super spreader events. It's it, people are, you know, they're falling out from the heat. They left people freezing cold in Omaha, Nebraska out on the tarmac from his uh, uh, rally there. They've just been so irresponsible. And every time he goes to a, lo- a locality, the front page of the news is not just, oh, the president is here. It's the increase in COVID-19 cases and deaths. You know, in Wisconsin, they're building field hospitals. El Paso, Texas right now is out of control. Those poor folks there, they represent 20% of the cases in the entire state of Texas. It's a disaster. The COVID-19 problem is a disaster. You have the medical community and public health experts just beside themselves because we're going into the winter months and people are going to move inside and there's no plan. And that is front of mind for many people going to the polls. Donald Trump can put his head in the sand and lie his ass off to the American people and try to gaslight them into believing that we have somehow turned the corner and we have it under control. Or Don Jr. going on Fox News, coked up out of his mind, trying to tell people that, uh, you know, the, the public health officials are wrong and that, you know, we're all assholes for wearing masks and <laughs> and taking the proper precautions. I mean, it's just insane. They look desperate. They look um, they have the posture of, of, of folks that are about to lose power and it's costing American lives. So. Listen, I, I think that the COVID-19 failed response will ultimately be the demise of Donald Trump's reelection, despite all of the other stuff that he has done, right? I mean, the lying, the, the bullying, the cozying up to dictators, the corruption, the dishonesty, the, the political vengeance. I mean, there are, the, the, the list is long for reasons why Donald Trump should be voted out of office. But it's amazing to me how many people don't seem to think that character matters. I know it's about, oh, well, the economy. I was going to vote for him, but now the economy is terrible. And and I just feel like at some point, it can't be that selfish. At some point, the decision has to be for the greater good. I'm sorry. I know the economy is always what drives people for the most part because it's how you know it affects your everyday life, right? You have to put food on the table and pay your bills and your mortgages and put kids to college through college. I get that. But sometimes it's bigger than that. And what made America great, what makes us great, why this American experiment has worked for so long and why it's being tested now 
is because we've always come together as a as a society. You know, the common good for our communities has also been part of our calculus, the way we behave. It's not just a selfish calculation that, well, what's in it for me? You know, there's a part of that. But uh, Donald Trump has really challenged that. People have been really selfish. And I'm hoping that that self-centeredness is repudiated. And I feel like it, I think it is. You know, people are looking at, is this the world we want our kids to grow up in? Are these the examples of leaders that we want for our children? And I really hope that that answer is no. But we're going to find out. We're going to find out. And Joe Biden couldn't have been any more right about the soul of the nation is at stake. And he's right. Character matters. It does. Our founding fathers, leaders, you know, some of the greatest political figures in our history have emphasized that. And it does. And once character and honesty start not to matter anymore, it's a slippery slope. It really is. So, but anyway, you know how I feel about that. Um, so a couple states to look forward to pay attention to as you're watching election night returns. Um, you can also, you know, if you're going to watch CNN, you got John King and the, you know, he's a, he's really good at breaking down precincts and counties. He's awesome. Same thing with Steve Kornacki over at MSNBC. Uh, they're really good at that stuff. Um, look at the suburbs outside of Atlanta. You know, Georgia's in play, which is amazing. The demographics have changed there. A lot of folks from from blue states have moved into the sun, the sun Belt. So that's it. That's Atlanta. Um, you know, Gwinnett, DeKalb, Fulton counties. Um, in Texas, I'm dying to see what happens in in Harris County and Dallas because Texas is in play, which is just uh, shocking. I just can't I can't emphasize this enough. Texas has been a white whale of politics for Democrats since 1976. They haven't voted for a president, a um, a Democratic president since then. I think, yeah. So this is remarkable. John Cornyn is fighting for his political life as a senator there with a political upstart, a woman, former military fighter pilot, I think she was. Um, Lindsey Graham is fighting for his life in South Carolina. Uh, Martha McSally is toast in Arizona. Arizona is another state to pay attention to. Look at the returns in Maricopa County. That's Phoenix. It's a huge area. Maricopa County is bigger than like something like seven or eight states in their total population. Uh, Trump won Maricopa County last time by four and a half percent, I think. He's losing there now. That's going to be the new bellwether state. Used to be Ohio. I think it's shifting to Arizona. Just demographically, things are changing and the way it looks there. Um, Arizona, pay attention to there. Pennsylvania, obviously. Biden has had a comfortable lead in Pennsylvania. I think it's outside the margin of error. So, you know... um, they may, we may not get the results right away with Pennsylvania. Do not freak out. Okay. Um, there are a lot of folks that are paying attention to what's going on. There is an army of election lawyers prepared to challenge if they need to. So if they try to pull any funny business, which they might, Republicans have been suing to try to stop people from voting, which is a whole nother discussion and shameful on their parts. We should be encouraging more people to vote legally, not make it more difficult that's going to have to be a reckoning and some types of some type of election reform needs to happen but just don't freak out there are a lot of people who are paying attention and who are on this so 
That's what I'm looking at. And normally you have like five or six battleground states, right? This time around, it's like 11, 12 battleground states. Iowa's a battleground state. Georgia now, um, you know, Texas, I, it's, it's remarkable, which is good. This is good. Democracy is working. So I, I mean, I hate to make any predictions because, you know, it's almost like superstitious. I don't want to, but if I were to call it right now, I think Joe Biden wins. I think he wins big. Um, and it's, he'll, he'll, I think if everything goes according to the trends that we see, he could win somewhere between around 350 to 400 electoral votes. That's that's on the generous side. That's my hope. That's my hope. So but we're praying and um, we'll, we'll check back again after it's all over. Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention before I bring in George Conway is uh, this this whole thing around Donald Trump's final... <laughs> final pitch and the the Hunter Biden nonsense and Giuliani and all of this mess, which I will be so glad when all of that is cast aside um, once Trump loses. But, you know, information has come out in in these final weeks, pretty significant, that would sink anybody else's campaign. The secret Chinese bank account, you know, Trump was doing business in China, even as president, the, you know, the tax information, this high, this idea that Trump's personal attorney Rudy Giuliani um, was probably working with Russian intelligence officers in in this this absurd, pathetic attempt to take down Joe Biden through Hunter Biden's business exploits. Which, by the way, um, as of now, Hunter Biden has been accused of no wrongdoing. He's not under um, investigation that we know of. They some some are saying that maybe he is now, but even if he is, that has nothing to do with Joe Biden. You know, all this information about, oh, there's documents and emails and these document dumps. Listen to me right now. That is part of a Russian intelligence operation. Rudy Giuliani has been running around Ukraine, getting information from people who are known Russian intelligence officers like Andrei Durkach. You will hear that name again in the future. Andrei Durkach has been sanctioned by the U.S. government and identified as a Russian intelligence officer. He was a member of the Ukrainian parliament, and he'd been feeding all kinds of crap to Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani has been a useful idiot for Russian intelligence. So there has been nothing tying Joe Biden to any of this crap that Fox News and all these others are trying to put out there about Hunter Biden. This idea that Hunter Biden got on a plane and then, you know, drove from Philly to Delaware to drop off, because he lives in LA now, by the way, that he dropped off some laptop to a legally blind, a random Apple computer repair guy in Delaware. It just strains credulity. Come on. Now I've, I've, been reading this because I, I have an interest in the whole Russian intelligence operation stuff. And I've been paying attention to it and talking to some of my friends who are in this business to root this stuff out. And they said that, listen, you know, this information, this alleged stolen laptop info has been shopped around for over a year. Okay. They've had this information and Burisma was hacked So who knows what's real and what's not. But the point is that this is all just a distraction. 
and Trump and Don Jr. and him and all of that Trump cabal, they have some nerve. They have a lot of audacity going after Hunter Biden for his problems and his questionable business uh, operations. Come on. And Joe Biden's not involved in this at all. So they need to stop because of all the legally dubious and things and unethical things that this administration has done and what the Trump people have done, get the hell out of here with that. So do not pay attention to what's going on. Coming, Anything that comes out of Rudy Giuliani's mouth should be cast aside as part of a Russian intelligence operation. And I'll tell you what else, Clint Watts, who is a former FBI agent, has been doing unbelievable work with his group, um, tracking Russian interference and foreign interference. And I got to tell you, they, you can follow Clint on, uh, Clint Watts on, uh, Facebook or Google him. I sat through one of their webinars, a briefing and the extent to which the Russians are using social media and using these right wing idiots to, to put out their disinformation is incredible. Absolutely incredible. The pipeline, um, it's, it's scary. And that's going to be a whole different fight moving forward, how we control that. Um, but it's important to recognize some of it. So if you are retweeting, let's say, information from Zero Hedge or Redfish or Just the News, John Solomon, who is a dishonest reporter who the Russians have identified as someone that they can give their information to. He got fired from the Hill. He's been fired basically from every job he's ever had in in journalism. And now he started something called Just the News, which is another um, purveyor of this disinformation. These these people are, these are front operations. So be careful, be careful. Uh, you know, Alex Jones and QAnon and all those people there, all that stuff, you know, Glenn Greenwald over at the intercept, he just resigned complaining about how it's all pro Biden and he, he's leaving now. Okay. Glenn Greenwald was another one that, um, the Russians were using, you know, WikiLeaks and all of that. So it's out there. It's out there. Be very, very mindful of the information, where you get your information and what you retweet, what you post on Facebook. You just never know. Um, unless it's from a reputable source. So pay attention as my grandfather, my police officer grandfather would always tell me, um, pay attention. So on that note, um, I want to bring in my good friend, George Conway, and let's have a little conversation. Next up, George Conway. next guest really needs no introduction, um, but uh, he is a, a first-timer on Honestly Speaking with Tara, a friend of mine, former co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and all-around Trump rabble-rouser, my friend George Conway. Welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Hi, Tara. How are you? <laughs> I am good. I I wonder if you have the same level of agita that I have days before this freaking election. I'm I, I'm just beside myself. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I feel good about it. I don't feel good about it. But what I do know is I've got Ajita. Where are you at with this thing? I, I don't have Ajita. I, to the extent I could have Ajita, it's because everybody else has Ajita. <laughs> and that does sort of tend to make you feel a little bit 
but I, it's not internal. I, I feel quite confident and actually have felt quite confident for a couple of years that ultimately this is what would have happened, what was going to happen to Donald Trump, that he was going to lose and that he was probably going to lose big because he just is a destructive individual and he's not smart enough or sane enough um, not to destroy himself. And, you know, when he was in business, the one the thing that saved him was daddy's money. The two things that saved him was were, were, were daddy's money and chapter 11. And chap, there's no chapter 11 for presidencies and dad, daddy's, money's, daddy's money is gone and, and can't help him here. That's true. You know, there. I'm glad that you feel a lot better and and feel confident about this thing uh, than I do. I, maybe I'm just it's suffering from PTSD like many others after 2016. But it's so different. The fundamentals are just really different from 2016. I mean, you know, you were you were there on the ground in 2016, and it was a shock to everyone that Trump actually pulled this off, even to him. Don't you think? Well, he was surprised that he won, I think. And I think you could see it on his face oh, yeah. on election night. <laughs> but I, I don't think if – I don't – I wasn't that surprised. I remember uh, my wife was talking to a reporter in the car on the way home from Manhattan on election eve 2016. And the reporter asked her – now, you know, it was on background or off the record. It was just a chit-chat, but she was on the speaker. Asked my wife what she thought of Trump's chances were. And my wife demurred. And I said later, just I thought it was 40%. You did. And yeah, and I think and I think the reasons were that yeah, the reason fundamental reason was Hillary never put Trump away. She was never above 50% in the national polls. There were lots of close state polls. And she was fundamentally running as in the role of the effectively as, as, as the incumbent. She was the person who the public was passing judgment on. And she couldn't get over 50% which told you that people were looking for an alternative. Right. She had this long history and people were giving, willing to give Trump a shot. She did, and that was the problem. She never put him away. And, and enough people just said, I'm going to give this guy a shot that he won. And she did beat him by a couple points in the popular vote. But that made... That closeness made it possible for Trump to pull out the swing states that he had focused on. I mean, he made repeated trips to Pennsylvania, southeastern Pennsylvania in particular, to basically they were trying to pick off, you know, suburban Republican leaning or moderate women in southeastern Pennsylvania, not to win that part of the state, but enough to add to the central and western parts of the state to make make a, a victory. And it worked. He only and, won by 44,000 votes. I mean, that's not a right. lot in Pennsylvania. And and, and 10,000 votes in in Michigan. Yep. And, 
then Wisconsin for a total of 77,744 votes. And my theory about Trump has always been that he has blown through those 77,744 votes. He blew through it a couple of years ago at least. And he's got to make up for those votes somewhere, but he can't. He's alienating um, the suburbs, suburban women, upper middle, you know, upper, upper middle, upper to upper you know, middle class to upper middle class people who have educations. And the problem for Trump is not only does that cause him to blow through his margins in the three states that put him over the top in 2016, but it's endangering his ability to win states that he absolutely positively must win, like Arizona. He's been polling consistently terribly in Maricopa County. Uh, which he won last time. Just, which he won last time and basically con- constitutes most of the population of the state. Texas is, I mean, Texas is crazy. Can you believe it? Texas is in play. It, yes. it, well, you know, if you look at it, He's doing worse than Cruz did. If you look at I, I went back the other day to look at the last 20 or 30 polls in the Cruz Beto race from 2018. And Ted was over 50 percent in a lot of those polls. He only won by about, I don't know, 2 percent. Yeah, it was he like 200,000 votes or something. But he was over 50 percent. Mm hmm. Trump has not been over 50% in any poll in Texas that I have seen for months. That's even when he's ahead, even when he's ahead by three or four points in some of the polls, although there are now polls that have Biden ahead, he's at 47, 48, not even 49 in a lot of them. And what that tells you is that people are looking for an alternative. Yep. And the demographics have changed, both in terms of education and, you know, people moving in from other states. You know, I know I know uh, a, a liberal leaning couple in Palo Alto who are looking for real estate in Austin. People are moving to that state because it's, you know, it, it's no state it's, tax. It's a, low, no state tax. <laughs> it's a great and business environment. Lots of labor. It's Austin's it's becoming, a great city. Yeah, it's a great city. The, the, the now the Fort Worth suburbs are booming yep. more than ever. I mean, I, I you know I went to, I went I worked in Houston thirty years ago as a summer associate at a law firm, and now, and I remember there was a certain point when you get drove past the ten loop where you started seeing it started becoming rural looking. Now you got to drive out another twenty miles. Yeah. The next loop. Yeah, that's right. Which was just a, which was just a farm road, I think, at the time. <laughs> you know, thirty years ago, and now it's like a major loop. I mean, it's like probably like one hundred and twenty miles to drive around that whole loop at least. And the traffic I mean, is awful. Crazy. I have friends there, great close friends that live there. I've spent some time in Houston, and it really is a uh, becoming a, a cosmopolitan city. I mean, four and a half million people live in Harris oh, it County. Is. It's it's great. Yes. And shout out to Taste of Texas There's out there liberal, in Katy. It's had a liberal Democratic lesbian mayor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, I, mean, I know. This is this is Houston is is not what it, what it used to be. Yeah, people not forget that. By, 
maybe it's not run by guys in Stetsons and with, with the, and, and, and with oil money. I mean, it's it's just not. Texas is a different state than it was 10, 15, and certainly twenty years and thirty years ago. Well, and we're going to find out how different is changing. Yeah, we're going to find out how Trump different that is, is on Tuesday. It. And Trump is pushing it, and and then you see, I mean, the, the turnout basically today. More people will, despite the to efforts to suppress the vote, and the crazy one drop box per county, I mean, for three million people in Harris County or more, I mean, they, they basically have the number of people who voted in 2016 have already voted early today. Yep. As of today. And then the demographics of those people, the young people voting, which is actually happening in other states as well. You have to wonder, and maybe it's too bad we don't have our friend Mike Madrid on, what have, have the polling models, what polling models have, have they been using and all these pollsters been using? And does it account for this kind of influx of younger voters? The demographics got to be completely different than anything that 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 they've seen before. And you know how polling works. Polling is you, you dial up a bunch of 900 random people. You're not going to get a representative sample unless you wait for all sorts of things, race, gender, education, and age. And this electorate, is not just in Texas, but everywhere, is going to look a lot different than what people were modeling. And it's, it's you have to think it's going to be a lot more favorable to Joe Biden. It looks because that way. Donald Trump has motivated people to come out. I mean, the notion that the Texas is in play, that Georgia is in play, it's it's mind boggling. You yeah. could see on next Tuesday, quite possibly, you can see Joe Biden winning um, 400 electoral votes. Not going on all of them might not be counted immediately, but if you if Texas comes in or Florida comes in early because they they do count their votes in advance, this could be over pretty early. Which would be remarkable. It would be that absolutely would be remarkable. remarkable. I mean, you know, no, we, no guarantees, right? Yeah, but, but the possibility though. Just the possibility. That's at least as likely. I mean, we weren't, nobody was talking about that four years ago. Nobody was talking about Texas possibly being in the Democratic column or Georgia, really. Georgia was closer than people thought it would be, but it wasn't. Nobody really took it seriously as a possible Democratic win. Right. That's right. You know, you said that so, um, in, in 2016 that you were 40 percent confident that Trump could win. And then when he did win, you were like, well, all right, um, let me give him a chance. Why, why did you think? I mean, people look at you and say, well, come on, George, you know, you're educated. You went to Harvard. You, you know, you lived in New York City. You know, Donald Trump. You've seen him. You had to know that Donald Trump was going to be an, a, a freaking disaster as president. What, what gave you some hope that maybe, maybe he wouldn't be what we thought he would be? Uh, I didn't realize he was a psychopath. I just thought he was. You know, uh, a self-centered ego, you know, guy with a big ego. I didn't think he was quite as stupid as I realize he is now. And I thought that age must might be giving him some level of maturity that might lead him to behave better over time. And also, this mostly the, the gravity of the office 
I thought people come into office and they realize that it's bigger than they are. The duty they owe to the nation is bigger than they are. And they want to go down in history as being remembered as a good president. And they want to surround themselves with good people. And all of these things would have a mitigating effect on some of his bad tendencies. And I, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have the illusion that there wouldn't be days that he would, that he would make me cringe. But it was my hope, and you know, you, you, it was wishful thinking that there'd be enough good days that would counteract that. And he, he did behave relatively well during the transition. I thought there really wasn't a lot of wild stuff during the transition. Now I realize that was simply because people were coming in to kiss his ring. So he liked that and he was on his best behavior because there was nothing, nothing for him to be unhappy about. Right. And the, so, you know, I, I, it was the, a combination of wishful thinking and, and you want, you know, I, I want, I wanted there to be a successful Republican president, understanding that no, nobody was going to be perfect. There are lots of policy reasons why. And, you know, and, and, my, and my wife had won this thing for him. So, you know, I wanted, I wanted all of that, you know, to come out positively. The problem is almost from the get go, you just sit there and you wonder, Oh God, what, why did they do that? Why did he say that? And that early in 2017 was mitigated by a belief that, well, this is the shakedown cruise. I mean, every presidency or a lot of presidencies have, you know, they, they, they get off to a slow start. Clinton's did in 1993. There was a lot of chaos there. They weren't ready to govern. And neither was this crew, but it, it will get better. But it didn't you know, get better, time, George. <laughs> it didn't get better. And I had, and I, you know, and that's the reason why I turned down a job as an assistant attorney general. I just thought what it was. And I remember the day I decided I just really was not going to do it. I remember texting my wife and saying, this is a complete shit show. And she didn't quite appreciate that. I'm sure. (laughs) It's been a shit show. It's been a shit show ever since. And got worse. I mean, at one point I called it a shit show in a dumpster fire. Now it's, I don't know. It's a shit show in a dumpster fire in a toxic waste. dump. So in in a, in a, 1980s New Jersey toxic waste dump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pre, pre super fun. Super fun, yeah. Uh, got better. No. Um. What? But what was? Was it true that you were up for solicitor general as well, or was that that was? There was some. That was just a. That, there was some. You know, press about that, but that was never really in the ballpark. Right. It was the DOJ job. It was. Yeah. What happened was there was some talk about that and. And then I was offered the civil division, which actually fit, you know, fit my background better as a civil litigator and not a Supreme Court advocate, although I had one case in the Supreme Court. And, you know, that, that would be kind of, that was a cool, it's a cool job. I mean, it would be, you know, you're basically running the nation's biggest law firm. But, you just, I, I mean, the notion of going into the administration, I remember thinking in April or May, it's like, this is just chaos. And the thing I remember, and I've told this story a number of times, that the the day I started thinking I really am not going to do it, 
and I was like 90% sure I wasn't going to do it was the day uh, the day Mueller was appointed. I remember driving home from work in New York and thinking and hearing this on the radio and thinking this guy's going to be at war with the department I'm going to work in. He's going to be at war with this department for two years. And I got my wife working in the White House. And I got, you know, it's just it's just crazy. This is nuts. Why would I want why would anybody want to subject themselves to that? And there's no, you know, maybe if everything calms down in a year or two and he gets a hang of it, maybe then why why do this? It, it's just it, it just seemed more trouble than it was worth. Well, you definitely then, made the right call. <laughs> well, it was one of the smartest things I ever did. Um, and and then it just got it just got worse. He, he, he stabilized a little. My perception was when John Kelly first got in there, things started to calm down a little bit in the fall. How long did that um, last, though, George? That was that what, like a month. No, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't last long. Yeah. And what happened was in 2018, he's Trump started thinking, "I have the hang of this job. I get this job." And he started. He stopped listening to people. Even you know what little advice he was taking that was sensible, he really start stopped taking. What was the breaking point for you? Because, you know, as you were kind of going through this, you know what I mean? You, you know, you're, you were you were going through this in, in, in a way yeah. that a lot of other people weren't, you know, even with the proximity you had with Kellyanne in the White House and living this day to day. What was the breaking point for you? The breaking point. I, I think it was the the. Uh, the final breaking point was sometime in the spring of 2018. Um, I mean, I'd gone off, been back and forth about it. Like some days I just swear and say the guy's just a fucking piece of shit and I, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> and then other days it's like, okay, well, just, you know, this is, I'll just, just try to ignore it and get along and you know, let this all play out. And don't worry about it too much. To tell you the truth, it was in 2018, the spring of 2018, I'd gone back and forth on how bad this was. Um, some, sometimes I would say, I, I just can't. I, I, it, it's off the charts bad. And other days I'd say, no, just, it'll get better. Don't worry about it so much. There was a time, there was a night that Kellyanne took me over to dinner at the Kushner's with Javanka. We had a nice dinner that night, just the four of us. And it was just the strangest evening of my entire life. One of the strangest. It was the night that that Playboy woman, the uh, McDougal was her name, was yep. giving an interview on CNN. Yep, with Anderson. And we're sitting there, and Trump starts calling their house, <laughs> wanting to know like what everyone's reaction to it was. And I don't know that I've ever told this story, but you know, he's calling, and you know, people were having dinner, which is kind of an amazing thing. You're like, where's this? television interview of this woman who got paid who's who's paid hush money free at, at his with his coordination from the national Enquirer, so she wouldn't spill the beans about what she had done with her with the 
Ivanka's father. I mean, which is bizarre. And then after that, you know, Jared starts talking about all of his policy initiatives. And like, like there's perfectly, like this is a perfectly normal administration that there's nothing screwy going on, pretending like this is normal. And then he asked me, what do you, how does this look from the outside? And I don't get tongue tied that much, but I, I, I didn't know what to say. I mean, my thinking was, well, this looks like a complete shit show, but I could, I was sitting there at dinner. How could I say that? And I just said, well, blah, 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 blah. I don't even remember what I said. And I remember leaving there that night and thinking about it the next day. I says, I can't play like this. I can't pretend. And, and then I started expressing my views on Twitter more. And I think the turning point on that was when Mona Charon basically said what she thought about Trump at, on a panel at CPAC. And I started retweeting that mm -hmm. because I just thought, you know, if she can say it, I can at least retweet her. And that was sort of it. And then people started noticing, well, he's retweeting this stuff. It's not necessarily all that complimentary of the president and administration. You know, and then, uh, and then the, the, rest just, is, the rest is the history rest is history at that I just, point. I used to just say, I'm just going to say whatever. I'm going to say what I think. I can't play. So that is that's that's a crazy story because, uh, you know, I, I think I mean, that it wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't want to express it before. I mean, there was one point a year before where I had tweeted something about, you know, how Trump had said something about the travel ban litigation. And that, that was just something that would undermine the solicitor general's position in the Supreme Court defending him. And I just tweeted something about that. And it was like a big deal. People said, oh, my God, he tweeted this. Um, and it was really quite mild, like, you know, something to the effect that the president can't do this and expect to get five votes in the Supreme Court. <laughs> so it's you know anyway. the, the idea that the president of the united states is watching cnn which even though he goes after cnn constantly and claims that cnn is terrible he watches cnn religiously just like he does with yeah everybody else and the fact that he is instead of governing instead of doing the hard work this is what he's doing he's calling jared and ivanka in the middle of uh an interview asking him you know, asking them, how is this playing? You know, how what, what are we going to do about this? Like about a Playboy model telling stories about his affairs with him, with them. Yes. It's surreal. Right. And you multiply that times a thousand over the last four years. Right. So, you know, at, at what point did you make the decision that you were going to do something as active as becoming part of the Lincoln project because it, you know, it's different than kind of yeah, saying, well, well I'm going to speak out. And the then first thing I did. Yeah. The, yeah. The first thing I did was I organized, I, it occurred to me that I should organize some lawyer. And the genesis of that was I started attending these meetings in Washington uh, called the meetings of the concern, which were conservatives and libertarians who were associated with various groups in town um, who were talking about things that could be done or the problems of the administration. It was, you know, it was essentially a, a secret anti-Trump 
meeting that happens every every couple of weeks. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, it was a it's a group that doesn't do anything itself, but the people who are members of it do things. I remember, like for example, I met Sarah Longwell there. I think Evan McMullen was there a couple mm-hmm. of times. I think Crystal may have been there once or tw- when I was there. And so there were people who were doing things, but the group itself didn't do anything. And it occurred to me, but there was something cathartic about it. All these people coming together and expressing their views about what was going on. And I thought, well, why can't we have that for lawyers? Um, and it occurred to me that um, I should organize a lawyers group of conservative and libertarian lawyers who were concerned about the effect that this guy was having on the rule of law. And so I organized a group um, called Checks and Balances. And that was sort of my first foray into actually doing something. And um, yeah, that happened in, I guess, the fall of 2018. So the Lincoln Project came about by, I got just got a call from, or an email from Reed Galen telling me about what uh, he and the other founders of what who became the founders of the Lincoln Project had in mind. And I said, yeah, sure. And I think the way that they knew to call me was a conversation I had had over the summer in 2019 uh, with Rick Wilson, where you know I expressed some interest in organizing something or participating in something along the lines of what ultimately we did and throwing out some ideas and he threw out some ideas. One of the ideas I remember thinking of and seeing if he would like was an idea that, hey, you know, you sh- people should be waging essentially psychological war on this guy. Mm-hmm. And he's easy to bait. His narcissism makes it impossible for him not to respond to things that, that he sees and distracts him and gets him off message. And for example, if you ran an ad saying, um, Jesus says, turn the other cheek, but Donald Trump uh, says the opposite, he'd start attacking Jesus. I remember saying something like that. <laughs> You're probably right. And the other, the, the other thing I remember saying was, hey, we can run ads, or somebody could run ads, should be running ads just to piss them off. And you can do that just by running ads in the District of Columbia so they get on the cable channels he watches. And it wouldn't cost that much because you're not running it in, you know, you're not running it all over the country in primary states or in battleground states. You could just sort of selectively just pick the cable operator that feeds the White House or something like that. And lo and behold, you know, that they ultimately did that and it worked. It's pretty amazing. And I think that I think you had the insight into that because you made you decided to make it almost a personal uh, hobby of yours to study Donald Trump's psychology. Like, why is this guy 
what is happening with him? And you've written extensively on this. The, I mean, that Atlantic piece you wrote last year was extraordinary. What was it like 11,000 words or something? It was a, a work of yeah. art and a labor of love for you. Um, what was some of the I mean, you also participated in the unfit documentary when you were doing this research and as you were putting this all together, what were some of the most shocking things that you discovered about Donald Trump and what made him so dangerous that I feel like emboldened you to be, be more outspoken? What were some of the most shocking things you discovered? That he was a sociopath and a, psycho, a psychopath. I didn't have any concept of those. I had a little bit of a concept of those terms, but I didn't fully understand how they applied or that they applied to Trump. The way I got into the whole psych stuff was, you know, I I wondered, why does he keep doing this stuff? What is it about him that causes him to engage in such counterproductive, self-destructive behavior? Why can't he just be normal? (laughs) And... I think one day I must have been Googling that and trying to research that or trying to get a better understanding of that in 20, I think it must have, I think it was sometime in 2018, I came across a piece that somebody had written in 2017 about Trump's pathological narcissism. It was an article written in Rolling Stone magazine uh, by a writer named Alex Morris who interviewed a bunch of mental health professionals and went through the diagnostic criteria for pathological narcissism in the DSM-5 for narcissistic personality disorder. And once I read that article, I realized, okay, this is it. This This is it. I mean, he meets these criteria 100%. And... At some point that year, I thought about that and read more about narcissistic personality disorder and was connected it up in my own mind with the duties of a president of the United States and some of the legal constitutional analysis thinking that some people had written, including this Harvard Law Review article, talking about how the presidency is the ultimate fiduciary responsibility in our republic. You you, you have fiduciaries of a trust who are responsible for maintaining the assets of the trust and making sure the the beneficiaries get their share. That's what we have in trust and estates law. And in corporate law, if you are a director or an officer of a corporation, you have a fiduciary duty to the corporation to operate it in the best possible manner for shareholders. And those concepts had roots in the law of public office holding. And when and that's not just for the presidency. This goes back to English law for all manner of offices, you know, other than the king. The king is the king. But office holders have a duty to operate in the public interest and not in their own 
personal interest. Complete opposite with Trump. (laughs) Right. And the framers of the Constitution were fully familiar with those concepts. And that's what they meant when they put phrases in the Constitution like the president shall take an oath saying that he will faithfully execute his office. And the impeachment clauses of the Constitution derive from English parliamentary history of impeachment. And one of the bases for impeachment was essentially breach of trust, breach of the duties to the public operating in your own interest instead of the public interest. And so it occurred to me there was room for a piece that went through all of this. And so I wrote the Atlantic piece, which, as you mentioned, was 11,427 words. Who's counting? And it went through, <laughs> um, like, the, like the Rolling Stone article did, it went through the elements, the diagnostic criteria of pathological narcissism. And then just, I just loaded the article with the countless examples that had occurred over the past, over two and a half years of his presidency, of him meeting those criteria. And then also I went into the criteria for um, antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy. And he met those too. I mean, you only have to, there are only like seven criteria. You only have to meet three to be a sociopath. <laughs> and one of them is pathological lying. Another is um, refusal to adhere to laws and norms. Uh, another is impulsivity. I mean, you, you're there already. And right. there are others, and he meets those as well. Right. You got four more, and he, he ticks off all the boxes. Right. And you started using the term malignant narcissism, which was uh, a right. term I hadn't I hadn't heard before. And I I basically right. stole it from you um, when you started to use it. But and I, I looked it up, and I was like, oh, that's what that applies. Yeah. And I and I, I didn't steal it, but I mean, it's a term. <laughs> it, it, it's a term that comes from the writings of a famous. Psychologist Eric Fromm, who in the 1950s, I think it was, tried to figure out what it was about the psyches of men like Hitler and Stalin that made them so dangerous. And essentially, what malignant narcissism is, is the combination of narcissism and sociopathy, or psychopathy, if you will, which is very similar in concept. And tinged with a dash of sadism and Machiavellianism. And, and that's what we have with Trump. I mean, he is a malignant narcissist. When, when narcissism gets so bad that you basically treat the rest of the world as beneath you and no, they don't mean anything to you. You have no, you know, I mean, like sociopaths have no remorse for anything. Extreme narcissists have no empathy for anything. This is just that combined with sadism, really. And that's what this is. And these people are the most destructive people in you could ever possibly know. And they get more dangerous over time when they accumulate more power. And they begin and they self-destruct because they are so they become unmoored from reality. I mean, you think of 
Hitler invading Russia and then convincing himself that, you know, his genius can get him out of that and take over the world. Um, and then taking credit for things that his generals had done earlier in the war and then not listening to them. I mean, that's exactly what you see with Trump. He doesn't listen to anybody. The parallels, the parallels are scary. He's created his own reality for himself. And if things go wrong, they always find somebody to blame. Narcissists always do. Uh, Which know, is all he does. Right. But that's all he has to do. And then he basically, they'll do anything to win. They become desperate. And they become more and more unmoored from reality. And I have to say, one of the most chilling things to see, you know, I saw the movie years ago, but it's become much more meaningful to me um, to watch in this age, is the movie Downfall which is this, this German film from about 15 years ago that portrayed the last 10 days in the bunker in Berlin in 1945. And the unreality that, it, that these actors depict of you know, people who's, they're, they're about to be overrun by the Russians and yet they're pretending, they're trying to pretend like things are perfectly normal. Uh, I mean, this is what you're seeing out on the campaign trail now this alternative reality that's not reality at all it's do, do, do you at any point is is that partially why you feel a bit more comfortable that the american people are going to make the right decision this time is that it really is just falling apart so um dramatically for trump that yeah. It can't succeed. Is that why you're not as, as you don't have as much Ajita right. as he, some of the rest of us? <laughs> right. He's going to self-destruct. The question is, what damage does he do along the way? Right. Even if he got reelected, he would self The problem is he'd take a lot more people with him. And the problem here now is that he's already taken a lot of people with him. You know, we, we were struck with COVID and he was completely unable and unwilling to address it in the way that it needed to be addressed. And because he doesn't care, he doesn't actually care about the people he was elected to serve. He just cared about, oh, we need a booming stock market. He cared about the appearance of the of an economic reality that he claims all credit for, even though he inherited a a good economy and for but for him it's the appearance of his greatness that matters and not actually doing the job and the irony of all this was he could have been you know by doing the right thing and handling this in the right manner he could have been a hero he could have gotten himself reelected. i mean look at what uh, jacinda ahern did in new zealand, new zealand. And look at how other leaders around the world have, in some countries, have handled the coronavirus. He could have done the right thing, and he could have survived this. But it wasn't in him. Right. You, you would say he, it wasn't not, possible. It, it's just not possible for someone possible. with his pathologies. Correct. Correct. The, the presidential pivot is never happening. 
Right. And, and, and part of, there were many reasons for that. One is the lack of empathy, the lack of caring, the lack of the, the actually the impulsiveness of a sociopath. Um, they, you know, there's also his ignorance, which is a, which is another thing. And in terms of the, but in terms of the narcissism, the, the refusal to cede ground to the scientists and to the experts, he has to be the expert. He has to be the know-it-all, even though he's one of the most ignorant human beings ever to occupy that office. He thinks he knows everything nonetheless. And that's one of the reasons why he couldn't, he couldn't sit back and say, oh, I have to defer to these people who know more than I, I do. He couldn't do it. And he was, he's about the last person you'd ever want to put in, frankly, any position of responsibility. And that's the price we paid. And it's just a tremendously sad thing. You know, um, you've been so gracious with your time. And, and as we wrap it up, I just wanted to ask you a couple more uh, quick questions about this whole thing. Um, what were what were some of your biggest holy shit moments when you during this just in the last year or if there's something beyond that? But like, what was your holy shit moment or moments and who's been the biggest disappointment or surprise in the in the Republican Party? Because, you know, you've been around a while. Like I have, you ran around the 1990s, you know, legal circles with Republicans. You worked in the Paula Jones case. You know, you've been around a lot of these guys. So who has been the biggest disappointment on the, in the Republican side, as far as being a hypocrite, not standing up to Trump? And what was what, some of your holy shit moments of, throughout this whole thing? I always ask people that. That's a good question. I, I don't think there were just so many holy shit moments. It, it I, I can't think of just one. <laughs> One or two. Um, Name your top really, three. <laughs> I, 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 I'd have to think really hard to rank them. Um, Ukraine was absolutely one that he would that 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 he had no idea that what he was doing was wrong and didn't care. Um, still doesn't. Was one and still doesn't. Um, I think that would be be the one. And then there were the, the ones that are that are kind of more trivial because of their just in, because of their indicative insanity, like his, um, you know, marking up the the uh, the hurricane map. Hurricane map. You know that, that, that there are lots of little events like that. Now, in terms of who's the biggest disappointment, now there I can't I can't pick any one person. It's almost like I've become disappointed in human nature um, with these Republicans. Everybody's been a disappointment. The only person who has who has risen to a moment in my mind was Mitt Romney when he cast that one vote for one, on one of the account one of the counts of the impeachment and the impeachment trial of, and voted guilty. And I, he deserves a great deal of credit for that. Other than that, everybody's been a disappointment. People are just too afraid. People who should know better and who have the stature to, to, to say something. People who aren't up for re-election for four more years uh, as senators, for example. They, they, they've, they've totally disgraced themselves by voting, you know, not voting to acquit this guy. 
Were you surprised, though, that they would go that far? I mean, I have to admit that I was pretty surprised that there were a couple of things that I thought, well, okay, they'll, you know, they rolled over, whatever. They were inconsequential policy wise. But some of the fundamental things like with impeachment and with with Putin and Helsinki and the national security space stuff, like I'm just shocked at how many Republicans have just abdicated their responsibilities. I, I just never thought as much as they preached all these decades about certain things that were supposedly non-negotiables for Republicans, um, that they were, that they've stood by and allowed this. I absolutely agree. And to me, the ultimate litmus test for whether I support the re-election of an incumbent Republican Senator was impeachment. Mm-hmm. They all fail that test. Miserably, they all completely fail that test. Yeah, and they—I guess—they forget they put, that we have their records they, from how they behaved they, themselves during Clinton. They, <laughs> I mean, not even to hear the evidence, to vote specifically to avoid hearing the evidence, lest they be forced to consider doing the right thing. They're an obligation to hear the evidence. They took—they have not only a constitutional oath. Um, to uphold the Constitution, but they took a specific additional oath for that trial to do impartial justice. And impartial justice means you vote based on the evidence, no matter who it is, is in the dock. And if you would have voted to convict the Democratic president on that evidence, and they all would have, then you need to convict the Republican president on that evidence, which they all should have. And they didn't because, it, you know, they 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 chose, yeah, they chose to bow to the altar of Trump and pledge fealty to him as opposed to upholding their oath to the Constitution, which I think has been the most dangerous part of this whole thing, which is what I think that the founding fathers didn't expect that there would be this many, you know, who would just completely abdicate their responsibilities because I blame them. Trump is who he is, but they were supposed to be there to stop it. All they had to say was, look, I, I, I support the president. He's as, as, you know, I want the president to succeed, but these are very serious charges, and we have an obligation as senators because we are sitting. The Constitution requires us to sit not as senators, but as a court, and we take an oath to do impartial justice. I have an obligation. We have an obligation to hear all the evidence. That's all they needed to say. That's right. And they, they didn't have to say, I think he's guilty. Right. In fact, it, it, it would be wrong. It, it, was, it, it would make no sense to do that. I want to hear the evidence. That's all they had to say. And the American people need to hear the evidence. That's all they needed to say to get to, you know, to have a trial, which was they, they were obligated to do. And I think at that point it would have taken care of itself. But they didn't want to hear the evidence because they didn't want the American people to hear the evidence. Did you think the and Democrats did a good I, I job? Just, I think they did as good a job as could be expected under the circumstances. I understand. I mean, the criticism, you know, there, there's the Bolton criticism. Bolton's criticism, right. and I don't think he really has standing to no. criticize, but, you know, he's making an argument, and I can address it on its own terms, is that what they needed to do 
was to provide evidence of a pattern of this conduct. And Bolton said he witnessed a pattern of this conduct. And he specifically mentioned the interference um, in the prosecution of I don't, this, you know, this Turkish bank, I think it was. Uh, it's in the New York Times today. Yeah, that's back and in the news. At, at, Erdo, at, at Erdogan's behest, and he cited some other examples, and he said that the Democrats should have taken the time to investigate all of that and then put more of a comprehensive case together, tying it all together. And, well, the problem was with that is it would have taken a year. Right. Time was not on their side for that. And they had a smoking gun as it was, and they made, and that's something you do when you're prosecuting cases as a prosecutor. And I think it's something that it was a reasonable choice on behalf of the house to basically say, well, we've got this one thing. We know it's emblematic of a lot of things, but let's keep this simple and just, you know, focus on this one thing, lest the, you know, lest this take too long and people get bored with it and, and it becomes too, too diffuse. And I think that was a reasonable choice to make. Right. Because what they did was what, what they, what they found with regard to Ukraine, even though a lot of the evidence was suppressed by the administration, what they found was sufficient. And yet, and yet, as as obvious as it was, it, it was it, the Republicans still put their heads in the sand with it and denied the American people yeah. the opportunity to make that decision honestly. Yeah. Um, but now, well, I guess the ultimate the ultimate jury will be the American people to vote on November third. Um, and you know, as we close, um, what what do you what do you say to people who? are worried that what happens if Trump gets reelected? What does it look like to you? And then what does it look like if Biden gets reelected? What's your message? Biden gets elected. Trump gets elected. If If Trump gets elected, we're in deep trouble. Because he has shown himself to be relatively unconstrained, even though he is constrained at this moment by the prospect of November 3rd. He said, for example, that at one point, he basically said a couple of weeks ago that uh, he'd love to get rid of Fauci, but it would cause too much of a stink in essence. He's actually constrained by public opinion because he's running for reelection. And, you know, this is this is the constrained Donald Trump that we are seeing. Jeez. And once if he gets reelected and he doesn't have to face the electorate again, although he says he could be elected to a third term, notwithstanding the provisions in the Constitution, if he thinks he's no longer constrained, he's there's no limit to what he's going to do. And there's nobody going to stand in his way inside the administration to keep him from firing the FBI director, from firing Bill Barr, because Barr refused to prosecute political enemies on the basis of no evidence. We, 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 haven't, we haven't even begun to see the damage that this guy could do if he's elected to a which is what we would see if he's elected to another term. So it's fair to say for those for those of us who say that it could literally undermine our democracy as we know it with another four years of Donald Trump. That's not hyperbole. No, that's not hyperbole at all. And Mm -hmm. I think the country becomes fundamentally ungovernable because I think that even if he managed to sweep by a victory, you know, by some um, 
unusual combination of events in the Electoral College, which would basically he'd hold Pennsylvania, he might lose Wisconsin and Michigan and hold Arizona. I don't think that's really going to happen. And, and hold Nebraska, too, for example. That could get him to 270 on the nose to 268. That's the way he wins if he wins. And he'd probably lose the popular vote by five or six or seven points. That's That's the way he wins if he wins at all. And he wouldn't have a mandate, but he'd still be president. He'd think he could do whatever he want under, wants under Article 2 because he's already said that, and he, would, he wouldn't be facing the electorate again. He'd probably still have a Democratic Congress, Senate and House in all likelihood. I think the country would become fundamentally ungovernable at that point because is, oh. I think you'd have – right. In addition to him, and he'd do more and more outrageous things. I mean, I, I fear for the I fear for the country if he's reelected. What about if Joe Biden so, wins? Well, if he wins, I mean, we we because those folks aren't going away, George. His people aren't going away. Well, I, I, here's what I think happens to the extent I, I want to play fortune teller, and I'm not always good at that. I don't think any of us are, but I do think the Republican Party is in a state of probably permanent decline. I mean, it has demographic issues. It's representing an older, whiter slice of the population that is sinking, whereas you're seeing this youth turnout that is going to mean that that could mean democratic supremacy at the ballot box for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. And you're seeing essentially the distillation of the Republican Party to an essence that consists of conspiracy theorists and, you know, QAnon types and people who basically have are low information voters who get their news and knowledge of public affairs from Facebook. And that's going to be in addition to the for beyond the demographic issues. It's going to become a more concentrated piece of the Democratic, I mean, excuse me, of the Republican Party because people like us have boiled off into the into the into the atmosphere. We're no longer Republicans, and now so this we're just the Republican Party is going to be distilled to a crazier essence and nominate crazier and crazier candidates for public office, like these QAnon. Can, supportive candidates in Georgia and Colorado. And it's going to get less and less of a slice of the general election vote. And I think the I think the Republican Party could be on a state of permanent decline, like the Whig Party was in the 1840s and 50s. I often make the comparison. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of what the administration would bring a Biden administration. I think the important thing for Biden administration will be restraint. I mean, one of the things that's essential to our democracy is you know, sometimes you have to put off, you have to put down or set aside the need or the feeling that you want to grab an immediate short-term political victory and look at the long-term consequences of doing so. The Republicans, for example, didn't do that when they jammed through Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. And both sides have been less willing to 
adhere to institutional norms, but now especially the Republicans. And what it's going to take to bring the country back together is some restraint. And I think one way they'll show how to show restraint is I think there need to be reforms that address the abuse of power in the presidency. And I think that what the Democrats will have to do, and I think Joe Biden is well suited to do it, is to say, we're not going to do some of these things that the other people did, even though we could do them now that we have the presidency and the Congress and they did them. We're going to step back and we're going to reinforce these norms that previously existed and add a few so that we are all better off in the future. And these are going to be rules that we are going to be, will be willing to live by now. And so that the other side, if they ever get back in power, will live by them. And what? there are all sorts of reforms like that, that, you know, I mean, for example, inspector generals and, and the Hatch Act and all sorts of all sorts of things that need to be you know, reinforced and updated to compensate or to address address the weaknesses we've seen in in the last four years. There's going to be a lot of work and a lot of things to put back together with a Biden presidency. And um, but starting with re, re, reaffirming Democratic norms, institutions and ideals. Oh, Good and, grief. And election, election reform. I mean, really, it's it's imperative. Yes. Engage in some kind of reform on the way we count and ca- we cast and count votes in this country because it's just, you know. We- yeah, 12 hours online to vote is absurd in the United States of America. Like, what are we doing, yeah. people? And on, the other hand, I, on the other hand, I don't think people should be voting a month before the election because it cuts short the electoral timetable. We need to create some kind of, my view, personal view, is some kind of way where you, the polls are open for a week or two and so that people can vote anytime and so that more people can vote and there are enough precincts and polling places out there in each location so that everybody really does have the chance to vote. Should election day be a holiday? A day off? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. But I think I think that thing is I think that but but I think that I think that we Election day can't be just one day anymore. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's it's not practical. Happen it. It shouldn't, I don't think it should be 30 days, although maybe they should allow, you know, you can, uh, we should allow mail in voting um, before that. But I think that we need to, or, or we can allow some mail in voting. But I think that, I think there needs to be a system of in person voting that lasts a couple of weeks that lasts not just that occurs not just in centralized locations but spread out enough that um, it's easy enough for people to access at their convenience yep without having to wait till the last day and waiting three hours in line i mean that's the perfect system you know it's going to take a lot to figure out what the best system is and it's never going to be perfect but well, this that this this now. election is definitely raising those conversations to a level that I don't think we've had seriously in a long time. So I suspect that there will be some changes before the next presidential election. Um, one last thing I had to ask you on, on a personal note. So you went to Harvard and then you went to Yale Law School, right? 
Um, how, who did you vote for? I mean, who did you root for during the uh, the, the Harvard Yale football games at that point <laughs> with the no, with I, that I, rivalry? You go, you got to go with you got to go with your your college album. That's right. That's right. As you know, I was a I was a uh, Harvard IOP fellow earlier this year. Unfortunately, it was cut short oh, by COVID. Yeah, and oh, um, oh yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I wanted you to come address my my study group, but everything got all you know got all crazy. And but I loved the time that I was that I spent in Cambridge. As a matter of fact, I have on one of my Harvard uh, sweatshirts on today. It's it's cold and rainy where we are here in D.C. Um, but I read that Dr. Hazeltine was one of your faculty advisors when you were an undergrad. For those who don't he know, was. there's no reason that's true. Yeah, he was. I, he, I don't know that he would remember me. I ended up not writing a thesis because I realized I didn't want to go to medical school and I was not going to pursue sciences. I went to law school. So I didn't write a thesis. And so that, so the amount of content, the contact I had with him was, was more limited. I went to, you know, he had these Tuesday or Wednesday, I forget what night of the week it was, where he'd have all his advisees over to his house in Somerville or Somerville, as they say up there. Right. And, um, you know, I, that, that, that he was, he was, uh, he was my advisor. I worked a summer in his lab. I doubt he would remember remember that. So for those who don't know why that's significant is Dr. Hazeltine was on uh, CNN not too long ago talking about the absurdity of the herd immunity approach by this administration and called it mass murder. So, yeah, I don't I I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's how I became familiar with him. And then I saw that he was your faculty advisor. And I said, it's such a small world. Who would have thunk that? Who would have thought it? Yeah. And you play guitar. I found out recently um, uh, we had you on that. You play guitar. We had you on the the Lincoln Project show, The Breakdown. What is your favorite song to play on guitar? And then I'll let you go. Um. I've learned to play the intro to Hotel California. Nice. Which I love playing. That is a that is a classic. And, Absolute classic. What's the song you want to learn that one day you're like, this is my opus. I want to make sure I can play this on the guitar one day. I want to learn. I want to play the, I want to be able to do the, I want to be able to play the full solo of that song. I haven't, I haven't really, I mean, I, I started learning it a little bit a little while ago, but then I put it down. Oh, so. Well, there you have it. So, yeah, you got to have some type, some type of reprieve. I tell people this all the time. You have to find joy in your life to balance out all of the crazy that's happening, because otherwise you lose sight of what really matters. So, George Conway, my friend, thank you for hanging right. out with me, and um, right. we'll see what happens with this election. And uh, it's it's a pleasure fighting on the same team with you. And I think we'll be on tomorrow tonight for on Lincoln Project TV. We will, and you you'll be on. I think with us on election night also. But uh, absolutely, we'll keep it going. George Conway, okay. thank you so much. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Again, big thank you to my friend George Conway. Um, he took the time. He was on the go. And I appreciate him chatting with me for a little bit and and giving us some insight into his experiences and, and what motivated him. And that story about Javanka, well, that's crazy. So never told before. So you got an exclusive here on, uh, on Honestly Speaking with Tara. I just want to thank everyone for your support. Um, I hope everyone has voted. And if you haven't, please, please, please get out there and vote like your life depends on it. And the next time that we are all together, I hope and pray 
that Trumpism has been repudiated and that Joe Biden has won in a landslide and we can begin to heal this country. So until next time, thank you so much. Wear your mask, socially distance and vote, vote, vote. Thank you.